So good evening. My name is Shyla Catherine, and it's my privilege to welcome you here tonight. Many of you are new to Insight Meditation South Bay, and so I'd like to orient you just for a few moments to what we do here, what our group is about. I founded Insight Meditation South Bay about 10 years ago in order to share the practices of mindfulness and insight meditation in the South Bay area. We offer two primary sitting groups each week, along with a comprehensive program. The two sitting groups occur Tuesday nights in Mountain View and Thursday nights just in the next room at this church on Thursdays. At each weekly sitting group, we meditate. We usually sit for 30 to 45 minutes. And then we explore the Buddhist teaching and address a wide array of aspects of meditation, mindfulness, concentration, and the Buddhist teachings. We also enjoy a wide spectrum of guest teachers. We host one day long each month on a Saturday so that you can have a continuity of meditation practice throughout the day and integrate that into your ordinary life because most people can spend several hours on a Saturday doing this. Um, We also offer suit-to-study classes that meet both locally and online, and we co-sponsor online courses with Bodhi courses. Tonight, Meng has provided us a very inspiring example of what we might call maximum generosity. He not only has offered to speak with us tonight and to share the practices of joy and to share um, stories and insights about his new book, Joy on Demand. But he's also offered to make this evening's program a benefit for Insight Meditation South Bay. And he has provided us with well over 100 books to share with you that will be available in the social hall after the talk. So we invite you to come and enter the social hall after the program tonight and accept a gift of a book from Meng and Insight Meditation South Bay. And to also enjoy tea and cookies with us. And Meng will be back there to sign books if you would like to approach him. He's quite approachable. Um, Only on Tuesdays, and today is Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) We invite you to... um, to give generously, to make this a very successful benefit event. And we hope that you will um, think of us kindly, uh, support our programs, and give generously to the Donna Baskets, according to your means, of course. As the um, founder of Insight Meditation South Bay, I just want to thank you in advance for your support of our work. So without further ado, it's a great joy to see you all here tonight. It's a great joy to have you with us, Meng. And I'd like to um, give you our very special guest speaker, author of Search Inside Yourself, and now Joy on Demand, the famous, the beloved, jolly good fellow, Meng. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my friends, uh, my name is Meng. Uh, can you, shall we begin with practice? So inst- I'm supposed to do practice for 30-ish minutes, uh, but instead of doing one long practice, I'd like to do a few short practices on joy. Is that okay? Yeah, people like short practices. Yeah, short, yes, I like short. <laughs> the first short practice, arriving. When you wanted to come here, 
right? I mean, before you came here, you, you drove here or something, before you came here, you, you thought to yourself, I want to be at this church. And then you arrived. And when you arrived, did anybody take time to, take time to think? I wanted to be here. I am here. I'm so happy. Nobody. Okay, let's do that practice. <laughs> Ten seconds, think to yourself, I wanted to be here. I am here. I'm so happy. Do it now. Thank you. Are you happier already? A little bit, right? So uh, throughout this, uh, this session, I think throughout the talk, I'll be giving you short practices like this, something that is, uh, is very portable. Uh, three three uh, uh, characteristics of the practices. Short, portable, recurrent. Short has been short. Uh, portable means you can use it anywhere. Recurrent means you can do it a lot. Uh, these practices, they are, even though they're so short, they're guaranteed to increase your happiness. All your money back. They, they didn't pay, right, to come here. Okay, good. All your money back. <laughs> so this is one. Uh, homework. Homework, when you go home today, uh, try this. So when you go home, just before you go home, you think to yourself, I want to go home. And then when you arrive home, just think. I wanted to be home. I am home. I'm so happy. Sounds good? That's a good homework. Like literally homework. Okay. And uh, if for those who are game, uh, further homework, from now on do this. Because we always, we're always going from place to place. We, and when, and when we're late or something, we're always nervous. But when, we, when everything goes well, we arrive on time, safely, and didn't die. We never think, we never celebrate. We say, oh my God, this is great. This is amazing. Hallelujah. Right? I'm so happy. So this is the first practice. Let's go to a second practice. Calming the mind. Calming the mind is the most basic, the most important, and the, sim- the sim- most basic, simplest, and the most important practice as a, uh, and skill as a meditator. So calming the mind, very simple. I like every... So first practice. Five seconds. I'd like you to take one breath. Bring total and gentle attention on one in-breath and one out-breath. And let's do it now. Good. Everybody good? Okay. Now we go next level. This is a Pokemon Go. Every level is harder. (laughs) Next level, three breaths. Same thing. Total but gentle attention to the breath. Now. Thank you. How many of you feel better now? Calmer, a bit happier. Right, okay, practically everybody. How many of you, when you did the one breath, even the one breath, you felt better? A little bit calmer, more relaxed. 
you might ask this question, why is one breath so powerful? It's just one breath, or even the three breaths. Why are three breaths so powerful? Very simple. Uh, there are two reasons. When you bring total and gentle attention to the breath, uh, there are two effects. The first effect is psycholo- uh, physiological, which is uh, when you're taking deep, when you bring attention to the breath, you find that they're slower and deeper. And because they're slower and deeper, you're stimulating a vagus nerve. And in doing that, you are stimulating the relaxation response, which is the opposite of stress response. That's why you're more relaxed in the first breath. Second reason, even more powerful. To worry, you need to be in the future. To regret, you need to be in the past. Therefore, when you're bringing full attention to this breath, you are in the present. You're totally in the present, and because you're in the present, you are free from worry and regret for the duration of three breaths. Freedom from worry and regret. That's how powerful this practice is. So if you are carrying worry and or regret all day, this practice allows you to put it down for even for a few seconds and bring it back up. Okay? And then allowing you to rest and recover from your, from your, your worry and regret of the day by freeing you from worry and regret. So the next practice is going to be even longer. Upskill, up next level. Let's do one minute. One minute, I'd like you to bring total attention to the present moment. If you want to, you can do what you just did before. Total and gentle attention to the breath or total attention to the moment, whatever that means to you. Sounds good? Okay, one minute, beginning now. Thank you. Ready for upskill? Okay. Next one. Even harder, but even more fun. I'm going to do another one-minute practice. Same thing. Present moment. But this is a change. During that one minute, notice if there's any joy in the experience of just being in the present moment. Sounds, sounds like fun? Okay, now now that you're all good, let's do two minutes. Two minutes resting in the present moment and noticing, just noticing if joy arises. If it does arise, know that it is arising. If it doesn't arise, know that there's no joy. That's all. Sounds good? Okay, two minutes beginning now.
Okay, thank you for your attention. How many people here notice that there is joy in the experience? Let's just show of hands. Okay, good. How many people notice there is no joy in the experience? Show of hands. Everybody else? Kind of eh. <laughs> okay, good. Next exercise. I'm going to uh, try a little bit of how to bring up a little bit of the joy. Now we're going back to the short practices again, and then I'll extend it once we practice this. Let's do a three-breath practice. First breath, I'd like you to collect your attention. Collecting means bring total and gentle attention to the breath. Second breath, relax the body. Third breath, bring up joy. And if you have problem bringing up joy, try this. Try smiling. Either a half smile or a full smile. Whatever the word half smile means to you. Uh, and the reason to do that is because how we feel is reflected on our face. However, the facial expression also affects how we feel. So by smiling, maybe there's some joy. Shall we try that? Okay, let's do it beginning now. First breath, collecting attention. Second breath, calming the body. And third breath, bringing up joy, smiling if necessary. And with that, thank you for your attention. Okay. How many people now on the third breath, uh, you get some joy? Good. No more people. So shall we try that practice? Okay, again, now it's, again, you're getting better and better at this, so it's, it's, we're getting longer. Three minutes. Uh, this is what I want you to do. Uh, the bell will ring once a minute. There's an app for that. And when the bell rings, do these three breaths. Collect attention, calm the body, and bring up joy, smiling if necessary. And then for the rest of the minute, just be in the present moment. The next bell, do the same thing. Present moment, next bell, do the same thing. Present moment. Sounds good? Okay. First breath, collecting your attention. Calming the body. And bringing up joy and smiling if you can. And if any joy arises, bring attention to the joy. Until it fades away. And then just resting the mind in the present moment for the duration of the rest of the minute. Collecting attention. Calming body. 
joy. and then resting. Same thing, collecting. Enjoy. And thank you for your attention. How was that? Any questions, comments, or reflections before I go to the last exercise? Okay. Last exercise. Uh, most powerful one. Longest and most powerful. This is a loving-kindness exercise. And the, the, the key point is, the key point I'd like you to familiarize the mind with the joy of loving-kindness. So not loving-kindness per se, but the joy of loving-kindness. And this is what I wanted to do. Let's do a one, one breath first, I mean one, one minute first, and then we do the longer version. I'd like you to bring up, bring to mind somebody you care about. Okay? And then, Wish for that person to be happy. So that's the thing. I wish for that person to be happy. And if you do that, you may find joy arising. And if that happens, bring full attention to that joy until it fades away. And then just rest in the mind. One minute. Shall we try that? Okay. Again, let's begin by settling the mind. And then now bring to mind somebody you care about. And then think, I wish for this person to be happy. And if you experience any joy, just attend to that joy. Until it fades away.
And with that, thank you. How is this practice? Is this the best one? Anybody experience joy in this practice? Show of hands. Okay, good. Anybody did not experience joy in this practice? Okay, everybody too shy to raise their hands. <laughs> so for the next 10 minutes or so, uh, let's do the combination of everything we just did. Everything that was conducive to joy. Calming the mind, uh, noticing, arising and noticing joy, and then loving kindness. So uh, let's do this. First five minutes, calming the mind, and then every, same thing, every minute, I'm going to remind you this. Every minute, uh, I remind you to do three breaths. Collecting attention, calming the body, arising joy. And then the next five minutes after that, so once a minute, and the bell rings. And then, when that, and then for the rest of the minute, just resting the mind. Resting the mind. And then the last five minutes, loving kindness. Bring to mind somebody you care about, wish for the person to be happy, attend to the joy. Until it fades away, rest, rest the mind. Sounds like fun? If not, sorry. <laughs> You're here already. <laughs> okay. So let's begin uh, by resting the mind. Sitting in a position that allows you to be alert and relaxed at the same time, whatever that means to you. Alert and relaxed. And with the first bell, let's begin the practice. First breath, collecting attention. Calming the body. And smiling. And if there's any joy, attending to the joy. And then resting the mind for the remainder of the minute. Collecting. Calming. Joy. Same thing.
again, collecting calming and joy. And for the last time, collecting. Calming. And joy. Let's shift gear into loving kindness. Bring into mind somebody you care about. Wish for that person to be happy. And if there's joy in doing that, bring attention to the joy. This practice is about attention, attending to the joy of loving kindness. Same thing, somebody you care about, wish for them to be happy and attending to joy.
same thing. Loving kindness, attending to the joy. Once again, repeating the cycle. And for the final time. And with that, my friends, thank you for your attention. Not quite what you were expecting, right? <laughs> uh, any questions and comments at this point or reflections? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, bring attention to the breath that's already there, as it is. And then if you do that, you might find automatically you are changing it. It's like, it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty thing, but by observing it, you change it. It's okay. If it changes, then for that moment, that is the natural breath. That's the way the breath wants to be. So whatever it turns out to be, that is the breath it wants to be. Hmm. Okay.
Uh, yes, ma'am. Feel the joy, but uh, I'm thinking, how can I give, have that person feel joy? So I'm thinking, how to ah. get that person to feel joy, or do I just enjoy my uh-huh. good feelings? <laughs> uh, just enjoy yourself. So this practice is for you. Uh-huh. Right? Okay. Loving kindness and compassion. The uh-huh. first beneficiary is you. Oh, oh right? thank so you. Uh, in in a way, we cannot we cannot change we cannot change what other people feel, but we can change ourselves. Yeah. Right? We can, and we can be kind to people. So, so this is about developing this kindness. Uh, more importantly, about the joy of the kindness. And, and because I, I think in, in traditional metta bhavana practice, there's a lot of, I wish for these people to be happy, my enemies, and so on. I think, I think what is neglecting is the joy aspect. And I think the joy aspect is what fuels the meditation. I mean, eventually people get it. Eventually, uh, it becomes so joyful that it becomes a jhanic factor. I mean, it's, it's a lead into jhana, like as the matter practice. But I find the instructions never given. So I, I thought it important to give the instruction to say, bring attention to the joy, familiarize with it. Then it becomes more powerful. Yeah. There's a question here. Is it a positive or a negative if I fall asleep during the process? <laughs> Uh, is it common when you meditate, you fall asleep? Yes. Okay. And then uh, when you fall asleep, when you wake up, uh, so let's say, let's say you fall asleep during meditation, and then you go to bed uh, at the same time. You say, fine, I'm not meditating, I'm going to sleep. Can you sleep? Yes. Uh, good. If that's the case, then it's because of physical uh, exhaustion. You're tired. Right? So if that's the case, just sleep. There is the, the reverse case, which is that when you meditate, you fall asleep, but right after that, you say, fine, I'm going to sleep, and then you cannot sleep then there's other causes that is not necessarily physical exhaustion. Yeah. Good, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm, uh, in 2008, I became an accidental meditation teacher. So how, how did that happen? Um, so I, I was an engineer in Google. And then in 2007, I led a team in my 20% time. So, so engineers have 20% time to do whatever they want to do. So I spent my 20% time leading a team to create a curriculum, a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum called Search Inside Yourself. So it's, it's part mindfulness, part leadership, part emotional intelligence. And then uh, it kind of became very popular. <laughs> How popular? Uh, every time, I mean today, uh, I mean like a year after I started, uh, every time I start a class, the class is full after 30 seconds. Right? Open, I open a class online uh, on the internal website, and what I, what I was told later was that people would be having a meeting, and then somebody was, I mean their laptops are open, somebody would say, class is open, and everybody knows what that means, they just go to the laptops and try to sign up, and half the people will not get in, because 30 seconds, gone. Right. It was eventually became that popular. So, so th- I was at the beginning stage. So, 07, I, I led the creation of this class. And then 0, uh, 08, uh, HR uh, in Google offered me a job to do this full-time. So I did. And then after that, uh, the financial crisis hit. <laughs> so uh, at that time, uh, we, we hired uh, like real teachers to teach the class. 
right, like real mindfulness teacher, uh, Zen, uh, uh, Zen Albert, what's his name, Norman Fisher, for example, was one of the teachers of Search Inside Yourself. So we always, always have two teachers, uh, and they're always highly qualified. And then the financial crisis hit. And then eventually, uh, the head of Google University told me, uh, not in those exact words, but fairly close. He was like, you, he told me, you saw the numbers? He was like, you teach it? I mean, you're going to have to teach it. I was like, I'm not qualified. <laughs> I mean, who am I? I'm just some guy, some engineer, right? And then he said, it's very easy. You teach it, or it's going away. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so I began, te- I began teaching SIY. I began teaching mindfulness, meditation. And uh, I, f- I, I discovered that I didn't suck. <laughs> or, or rather, I didn't suck as much as I thought I would. <laughs> and then eventually, like, after a while, uh, and then you know, I, I wrote a book, and then it became an international bestseller uh, instantly, and then people, like, Buddhist groups started inviting me to speak at, at Buddhist events. Uh, so I uh, accidentally became a Dharma teacher as well. <laughs> so no qualifications uh, if, if anything I, so everything I say you should just be thinking uh, like how should I say it whatever I say uh, assume it is not true until you try out for yourself and find that it works for you if it doesn't work for you it's all, it's all a suggestion that's way that way I was going to say BS but we have recorded so I can say BS <laughs> so as a mindfulness teacher, um, and so as I became very successful, the book came out, and then there's one thing I, I keep hearing over and over again. People keep coming to tell me, uh, search inside yourself, the class, the book, changed my life. The practice changed my life. I said, good, good. And then after a while, same thing. So, Joe, how's your practice? <laughs> Lost it. <laughs> And I discovered it's, it's fairly consistent. Like of the people who start practicing, uh, it's like a lot of them, almost everybody, they said, this changed my life. And then after a while, the practice tapered off. And then it gets closer and closer to zero. And for some large percentage of people, like half the people, zero. What to do? Uh, and, and I discovered uh, this is it's not unique to meditation. I discovered it's also happening to the gym. <laughs> Right? Everybody has the same thing. Right? They go to the gym, and, and there are some percentage of people, they take a class, like eight weeks or whatever, Pilates or whatever, and then during these eight weeks, they say, oh my gods, uh, I'm, polite- I'm polytheist, so oh my gods, oh my gods, this changed my life. Right? I mean, now they're physically fit for the first time. They're healthy, they said they have energy, they said this is life-changing, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then after like eight weeks, it starts to get less and less. They, Twice a week becomes once a week, and after a while, like zero. It's fairly consistent. The gym tried to have tried to solve this problem. And when I was working in Google, I, I kind of retired last year. I mean, kind of, I retired last year when I turned forty-five. Uh, but when I was in Google, uh, I was told that the people in the gym they tried they tried like incentivizing people to come, like organizing events and so on. Always the same few people come, right? So it didn't solve the problem. So I had this, I had this problem. How do I get how do I help my students and people in general sustain their practice? And that obsessed me for a while. I kept trying to solve that problem. I mean, I'm an engineer. I solve problems. That's what I do for a living. I try to solve that problem. So I looked to the gym. I looked to, I looked to exercise. 
And I found that uh, it has been a problem that the gym has been trying to solve for a long time, and uh, there are a few generous solutions. One generous solution is community. Right? Uh, you have a buddy, for example, or two buddies, you go to the gym together, and you hold, hold each other accountable. Right? And if you don't go, your other buddies will call you up and harass you. I mean, will, will uh, ask you how you are <laughs> because they care for you. But, but it, it's, the mutual harassment makes you go, <laughs> uh, go for a practice. Or you attend a class, and then you are, you are, you are accountable to the teacher and to the class. Right? So that's one, community. Uh, another one is uh, informal practices. So, for example, instead of going to the gym, you... Uh, Walk. You park your car. You park your car further, and you walk. Instead of taking an elevator, you walk. Right? So you do a lot of walking. So, but it doesn't replace the gym. It only complements, and it's better than zero. So, what's the most important solution? I think for, for, for exercise, I think the best solution is gamification. People gamify exercise, and there's an English word for it. The word is sports. People play sports, right? It's something you do for fun. So people, nobody has time to go to the gym or exercise, but people make time to play. So therefore, if you gamify exercise, people will exercise. So the solution, the best solution is joy. Inject joy into the practice and people will do it. Problem is how? Right? So in exercise, it's fairly simple because exercise is a stimulus-led activity. There's stimulus, and because of stimulus, you can make it fun. Meditation is mostly stimulus-free. Right? You sit there for half an hour. <laughs> How do you make it joyful? Fortunately, uh, there's this, when you meditate, there's this thing called inner joy that you can have access to. And uh, in my observation, in the, in the lifetime career of every seasoned meditator, they'll reach a point where I imaginatively call the joy point. There's a point where sitting practice becomes consistently and reliably joyful. What does that mean? It means that you sit down on your meditation cushion, and then within a few seconds, a few minutes, it is a joyful activity. Just sit there and say, oh, this is great. I'm so happy. Every meditator gets there sometime in their career. I mean, not, not everybody lasts long enough to get there. But if you last long enough, eventually you get there. So the question I, start ask, I started asking myself is this. How do I accelerate my students towards the joy point? Because once they reach a joy point, when sitting becomes joyful, then it becomes self-sustaining. Then I start worrying about them dropping the practice. Right? So how do I get them there? How do I accelerate them? And I thought about it for a while. And I realized... Uh, after a while, I realized I was asking the wrong question. The question I should be asking is, how do I accelerate them? The question I should be asking is, how should I front load the joy? Bring joy right to the beginning of the practice so that the whole path is a path of joy. And I, I had my inspiration from, uh, from the Buddha himself. And the Buddha did say about, about he said about the, the, the path of Dharma, he says, this is a good and safe path to be taken joyfully. So not just go and safe, but to be taken joyfully. 
right? This whole path, and I, I reflected on this. My whole path is basically a path of increasing joy. So implicit in what I just said, there's, there's something that, that underlying what, everything I just said, which is this, which is that, but before that, those things I just said, they're kind of mind-blowing, right? I'm saying there's a joy point. Sitting there consistently joyful. I'm saying that it's something you can accelerate towards or you can bring forward. What does that imply? It implies underlying everything I say. It implies that joy, or rather access to joy, is a skill. And all skills are trainable. And therefore, access to joy is trainable. That is a huge point. right? Because it's like we're all trying to be happy. And some of us are born happy, some of us are not. Some of us in happy circumstances, some of us are not. And then, if it suddenly turns out that it's a skill, just like playing basketball or something, or, or like a skate, skating, something you can pick up with practice. Joy itself is, a, is something you can pick up with practice. changes everything. So that was my discovery. And so, um, so I started reflecting on this. My, my, whole, my, my lifetime of practice, and I start, then I, st- I start thinking what contributes directly to the joy. So I, I didn't change anything. I just took those parts and put together in a coherent system, putting joy at the center of the practice. So those things you, you did earlier today, there's some sampler, sampler of it. I, I hope you like it. Yeah. Like I said, all your money back. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started, write, I started wanting to write a book on how to bring joy into a meditation practice, I ended up with a book about how to create joy, how to access joy in general that everybody can benefit from, not just uh, Buddhists, not just hardcore meditators. Right? Short, portable, recurrent practices. Everybody can do. A few seconds here, a few minutes there. Everybody can do. The other thing about joy, uh, in, in, there was the work in my favor especially in Silicon Valley, and especially in my hometown in Singapore, where like 75% are Chinese. It's like it turns out, joy is also, uh, sorry, happiness is conducive to success. Right? I mean, I grew up, I'm Chinese, I grew up being, taught, being told that you know, success brings happiness. Turns out not true. I mean, if you grow in Silicon Valley, you see a lot of rich people, successful people, a lot of them are not happy, <laughs> a lot of them are miserable. <laughs> However, the reverse is true. turns out that happiness contributes to success. Happiness is a success factor. Right? For example, if you are happy, you do 37% better in sales. Which at first, when I first read it, it was kind of mind-blowing. But then retroactively, it makes perfect sense. Right? There are two people. Okay, I'm not going to point at people. The one person, no, sorry. Okay, two, two persons. Right. <laughs> right. One person, sales people, same product, same price. One guy always miserable, the other guy always happy. Who do you buy from? Now, in general, you buy from a happy guy. Right? Because you're happy to see him, he's happy to see you. Right? So, so it turns out that there is a premium, a sales premium when it comes to ha- I mean, there's a happiness premium when it comes to sales. And it's 30, 37%. It's fascinating. Right? If you're happy, you're also more likely to not make mistakes when you're working. You're more likely to be more productive. You're more likely to be likable, uh, healthy, and so on and so forth. It's a whole host of effects that correlates with success. 
So therefore, if you learn to be happy, not just like happiness itself is own reward, and if you're Chinese, you also become successful. <laughs> I mean, you're going to become successful, and you, like, if you're Chinese, that, like, your parents will be happy. <laughs> but first, what is the difference between happiness and success? So I, I said happiness leads to success. I mean, what's the difference between happiness and joy? For happiness, I'm using the definition by Matthew Ricard, uh, happiest man in the world. I think most of you have heard of him. Matthew defined happiness as an optimal state of, uh, sorry, a deep sense of flourishing that arises from an exceptionally healthy mind. Not a, not a pleasurable feeling, not a fleeting feeling, not an emotion, not, a, not even a mood, but an optimal state of being. In contrast, so, so happiness is a net effect over time. Right? In contrast, joy is moment-to-moment pleasant emotional feeling. So the interaction between the two. When you say happiness, when I had a happy day or I had a happy lifetime, it's a net effect over time. Right? It's like, so not every single moment of happy day is joyful. Like you got, you got, you're got stuck in traffic on your way here for 10 minutes. But, but overall, this is a great day. I'm a happy day. Right? Uh, so in a happy day, not every moment is joyful. However, there is no such thing as joyless happiness. So joy is the building block for happiness. Therefore, if you learn to access joy, you can use that to build a happy life. So that's the relationship. So... The key is access joy. Question is how? And I think there are three, there are three pillars, or there are three ways uh, uh, to access joy. The first is easing, easing into joy. What does that mean? When your mind is at ease, uh, we did it just now, right? We took a, one breath and you find that you're at ease. And then when you're at ease, you may find that over time, the mind at ease is a joyful mind. That joy arises spontaneously. And not just arises spontaneously. You can use the joy to reinforce the ease. And the ease to reinforce the joy. And it becomes a virtuous cycle. And it's fascinating. Then you become you are relaxed and alert and happy just by sitting. Like, why? Like, how does that work? It was a mystery to, even to, to me for a long time. Uh, so for me, even, by the way, I, I kind of got that by accident. I, was, I wasn't intended. I mean, when I was growing up, doing meditation, I didn't get these instructions. I didn't get the map. And I was just told, just sit. Right? And, as, and then out of nowhere, I realized, over time, I realized I had this reliable access to joy. And the question is, Why? And so I asked Alan Wallace. I was like, why? I mean, I asked a few people, and Alan Wallace gave me the best answer. I asked them, why is it that an, an alert and relaxed mind is always joyful? And Alan gave me the best answer. He said, it's very simple. Because joy is the default state of mind. Therefore, by bringing the mind to an alert and relaxed state, you're bringing it back to default. That's it. No, no magic. Right? Mind is fascinating. Which means what? Which means that happiness is not something we need to pursue. 
Happiness is already there. We just need to allow it. We just need to see it. And uh, I like to compare it. So I think there's a technical term. And the technical term, I think, is sukha. Uh, of, some, often translated as happiness, uh, bliss, sometimes translated, uh, in my, I mean, one of the better translation, in my opinion, as non-energetic joy, gentle joy. And the thing about gentle joy is that it is, there are two features. The first feature is that it's very subtle because it doesn't, it's not energetic. The second feature, it is, is because it doesn't require energy, it's extremely sustainable. So once you can access it, you can get it a lot. Uh, and the, the way I compare, I compare it to the humming sound of the air conditioning. You go to a room and the air conditioning is humming. Usually you don't notice. The only time you notice is when you do two things. You quiet down and you pay attention. Then you notice there's humming in the room and you notice it's always there and it'll always be there as long as the aircon is on. Same thing with the mind. As when you quiet down the mind and you pay attention. Again, this is a suggestion. Uh, try it out for yourself. If it doesn't work, it's wrong. But I'm suggesting that when you quiet down and pay attention, you will find there's a joyful quality of mind. And that joyful quality of mind is very subtle, but it's extremely sustainable. And so once you learn to access it, you find that it's always there, reliable, always there for you. So when you do that, the first thing that happens is that you become, you have access to joy, so you have become happier. Okay? Because now you have the building block for happiness. Even more important than that, Is how should I say it? Even more important than being happier is uh, freedom. So, normal day-to-day life, we make this assumption. We assume that in order to have, have joy, you need there are only two sources of joy. One is sensory pleasure, good smell, good taste, good feeling, whatever. The other is ego pleasure. People say nice things about you. Right? People say you're generous, they put you, they put you on stage, so on and so forth. Right? So when we have these two sources of pleasure, we have joy. The problem, there are a couple of problems. One problem is that uh, we start to, to believe that therefore if we don't have this pleasure, we don't have joy. Even worse than that, uh, there's habituation, which is this type of pleasure, after a while you get used to it. Right? You, uh, you got a promotion, yay, ego pleasure. And after three months, eh, I'm just a director, I'm not VP. <laughs> and they got promoted to VP, yay, I'm not VP, I'm not CEO. <laughs> right? so, and then same thing with, with sense pleasure. You keep habituating, you need more. And then like, where does it go? Right? Where, where does it end? Eventually, you need to be a billionaire. Right? Eventually, you need to marry three wives, all mothers. Eventually, he did run for president. <laughs> Doesn't end. So if you have access to that inner joy, to that sukha, something changes, which is you no longer have to rely on those sources of pleasure. I mean, they're still good. You still like them. Uh, you still 
kind of pursue them, but you no longer need them. You're no longer the prisoner. It's just they, are, they become friends rather than prisoners. Nice to have, not always necessary. Right? That's the first, that's the first effect. It's very powerful. Even more important than that is that it raises, over time, if you have access to that kind of inner joy, it raises the happiness set point. So we all have this thing called the happiness set point that we return to. Right? So, so we have this point, let's say, let's say uh, and then when something good happens, we win the lottery or something, we get a promotion, they go, yes, and the happiness goes up, and eventually it goes back to the set point. And something very bad happens, it goes down, and then eventually goes to the set point. Right? There was, the, the, there was the, uh, a finding from, I think since the 60s, fairly consistent finding. We all have a happiness set point that we return to after catastrophe or after big, uh, 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 good things, whatever, what's the word? Yeah, good things or bad things. And some of us are, there's, there's, a, there's a distribution, right? Some of us are born, most of us are born like kind of neutral, most women kind of air, eh, right? Some of us are born with a high happiness set point, we're always happy. Some of us are born with a low happiness set point, always miserable. So, where, where was I? <laughs> Would you believe me if I say I was on the miserable end? Yeah, I used to be miserable. Right? Uh, so my happiness set point, if not, then the way I found out is if, if nothing's happening. If nothing's happening, I'm just miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and then, after I did the practice, one fine day, I just suddenly discovered, I suddenly discovered, wait a minute, if nothing is happening, I'm jolly. I'll say, oh my God, I move from this end of the spectrum to this other end. Fascinating. Like me, this guy, this, this useless guy, right, can do this. If I can do this, anybody can do this. And, and it's because of these practices. I mean, starting with the access to sukha, inner joy. When you have inner joy, eventually the happiness set point just keep going up, going up, going up. And then before, before I knew it, I was there. Fascinating stuff. So this is the power of this practice. And what it does it take? It, all it takes is sitting, quieting the mind. And it doesn't take uh, that long. I mean, if you can do 20 minutes, 40 minutes a day, that's best. Uh, for those of you who cannot, even short amount of practices, but high level of concentration. So total attention and, most important, gentle. Gentle and total attention. If you can do that, short amount of time, that's good enough. Uh, why? Uh, there's there's an there's a analogy, perfume analogy. If you have weak perfume, right, if you're in a room, then your room smells good. But if you have very strong perfume, you open it for a few seconds, you close it, the whole room smells good. For, for like many minutes or maybe an hour. Same thing. If, you're, if you have very strong concentration, uh, and strong engender, even though it lasts only for 6 seconds, 12 seconds, 18 seconds, whatever it is, it will last you for, the effect will carry on for many minutes, sometimes an hour. So every hour or so, just do one. Uh, every time you have to wait, traffic light, uh, DMV, lunch line, Take breath. That will make a difference. And that's only step one. Step two in access to joy is inclining the mind towards joy. Inclining the mind. The word inclining uh, in the old uh, ancient scriptures, the inclination of mind is compared to the inclination of a mountain. When a mountain is sloped in a certain way, 
when water flows, it flows effortlessly in that direction. The key word here is effortless. Same thing, when the mind is inclined in a certain way, mental states flow effortlessly in that direction. For example, if you're inclined towards anger, every other thing makes you angry, effortlessly. Right? However, if you're inclined towards joy, every other thing you find joyful. So the key is to change the inclination of mind. Question is how? A couple of ways to do that, but I tell you the, the most, one of the most powerful ways that I found could be the most powerful way, which is to notice thin slices of joy. So what is a thin slice of joy? For example, when you're thirsty because you've been speaking, and then you, you take a sip of water. Mm, that was nice. That's a thin slice of joy. You notice that it's thin in space and time. Right? It's thin in space as it, it wasn't like, yes. it was like, eh, it's great. It's kind of nice. And it was thin slice of time because it lasts no more than three seconds. Right? Two or three seconds and it's gone. We don't notice those things. If you bring attention to them, you find that you suddenly find that they're everywhere. In life, there's so many moments when there are thin slices of joy. Uh, you're, I'm, I'm guessing everybody in this room gets to drink water at least once a day. So at least once a day, you have that thin slice of joy. All of you, I'm guessing again, get to eat at least once a day. So at least once a day, you have at least a first bite, that's a thin slice of joy. Right? You have so many shower, walking. Like everything you do, that's a thin slice of joy. So if you notice it, what happens? It's, it's, like, playing blue, it's like playing a game of uh, blue cars, noticing blue cars. If you play a game, let's say, let's say we play a game. Uh, everybody, we count the number of blue cars you see on the street for one day, and whoever counts the highest number of cars wins a prize. I say, okay, what's the prize? Uh, at first, I was going to give you a bell, but I tell myself, no bell, please. So you get a no bell, please prize. Ah. <laughs> it, was, it was especially funny when I said I told a joke in front of a Nobel Peace Prize winner. <laughs> you get a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and then if you do that, suddenly you notice that blue cars are everywhere. All around you in traffic. Same thing here. If you notice thin slices of joy, suddenly you notice that it's everywhere. I mean, it's there all the time. Right? You just never notice it. So if you do that practice, the first effect already is your quality of life improves. You're happier already. Nothing changes. Not a single thing in life changes. Yet you're happier already. Why? Because suddenly you notice those thin slices of joy. But that's not even the most powerful effect. There's something even more powerful than that, which is that if you do that, you are familiarizing the mind with joy. The mind becomes familiar and then when the mind is familiar, the word familiar is related to the word family. So if you're familiar with joy, then joy becomes a member of family. Becomes somebody, you can, your best friend, somebody you can count on, somebody who's always there for you. Joy becomes that. And through familiarization, the mind inclines towards joy. That's the second effect, a uh, second pillar of practice. Uh, can I assign homework, by the way? Yeah, sorry, I'm Chinese, so you come to my talk, you get homework. Okay? 
homework for everybody. Uh, when you go home, uh, when you drink water, notice a thin slice of joy. When you eat, first bite, bring full attention to the thin slice of joy. So attending not to the sensation, but to the joy, the thin slice of joy. Uh, shower, the first water, ah, thin slice of joy. Also, when you see a friend, old friend or new friend, say, hey, thin slice, is that the, the joy? Notice that. Better than noticing, bring attention to it. Okay? Nice homework. Easy, right? Okay. So remember your homework? Okay. Uh, first homework uh, we did earlier, uh, arrival, when you go home. Uh, second homework, uh, one breath every now and then. At least once a day, okay? One breath a day for the rest of your life. That's all I ask. <laughs> uh, third homework, uh, thin size of joy. Okay. The last pillar of of uh, uh, access to joy is uplifting, uplifting the mind specifically with goodness. So you did, we did it just now, uh, loving kindness. Shall we try another experiment for 10 seconds? So I think those of you who come to my talks, I do this every talk, so by now you'll be going, ah. <laughs> but here's, here's what I wanted to do. I'd like you to uh, secretly, secretly identify two people in this room and you know, we had just wish for those two people to be happy. Right? I wish for this person to be happy. I wish for this person to be happy. In your head. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't go like... <laughs> just think. This is entirely thinking exercise only. Sounds good? Okay, 10 seconds. Thank you. You notice you're happy doing this? You're smiling? You notice that to be on the giving end of a kind thought is intrinsically rewarding. On the giving end of a kind thought. What, what, I mean, what are the implications? The, the first thing is, how far can you push this? I, I was giving a talk on a Monday evening. Oh, this sounds like next homework. Okay, I was giving a talk on a Monday evening. And we, we did this. Uh, that was in Spirit Rock. And then I say, okay, uh, that was the Jack, Jack's uh, mon, uh, Monday, Monday thing. So I was, I was speaking that Monday. So I, I, was, I told the audience, okay, tomorrow is Tuesday. Every hour, spend 10 seconds secretly in your head wishing for two people outside the office to be happy. Right? So it, just thinking is not embarrassing. Because nobody knows what you're thinking, as long as you don't go like... <laughs> right? You don't do this, nobody knows. Right? Then, then get back to work. Nothing changes. See what happens. That was Monday evening. Sunday morning, I received an email from a total stranger. And this person said, she said, I hate my job. I hate coming to work every single day. However, I did the homework on Tuesday. And Tuesday was my happiest day in seven years. Wow. Yeah. Happiest day in seven years. What did it take? It took 80 seconds of thinking. Not even doing anything. Just thinking. It's fascinating. Right? That much happiness for that little effort. And more important than that, the previous exercises all takes a little bit of practice, right? Calming the mind, easing. Easing takes a little bit. Not, not everybody can do that at the first time. Some people go like, takes some time to ease, right? Inclining the mind again takes a little bit of effort to notice things, right? It takes a while. However, loving kindness. What did it take? It took thinking. Every adult. I've ever known in my life, in my life, who's conscious knows how to think. They know how to bring up a thought. 
Bringing out a thought is the easiest thing we do. Therefore, if all it takes to access joy is to bring up a thought, then it's the easiest thing. Right? Powerful, right? Sounds good? So, so this, by the way, is so powerful, loving kindness. This is so powerful that if you only remember one thing I say, to, if you only remember one thing from today, remember how good I look. <laughs> if you remember two things, no. If you remember only one thing today, remember this exercise, loving kindness. That's the most important thing. You forget everything else, do just loving kindness. Randomly wish for people to be happy. Right. And then, and better than that, what happens beyond that? So, so you wish for people to be happy, you have a jolt of joy now and then. Better than that is that eventually you start to become a different person, you transform. Why? Because if you do that, you're just wishing for people to be happy, it becomes a mental habit. Mental habit is established, you look at human being, the first thought is, I wish for this person to be happy. That's the first thought. Why? Because it's a habit. Simple as that. And then habit becomes personality. Personality becomes character. Character becomes you. Therefore, you become a kind person simply by thinking something often. You become that person. Fascinating stuff. Therefore, saintliness is trainable. And this is the training. The training is simply have a thought a lot. So you become that person. And eventually, goodness and joy become one. To be joyful is to be good. To be good is to be joyful. And once that happens, a lot of ethical questions go away. Like you don't even think of ethics. You just do what makes you happy, and that is the right thing. Because goodness is joy. Good joy is goodness. So this is it. Three pillars, three ways to access joy. Do this, I guarantee you will be happier. If you practice this, these things over time, what happens? Three things happen. The first thing is that uh, joyful, sorry, positive experiences, joyful experiences become more joyful for the simple reason that you are paying attention. Right? Previously, when you eat sushi, you say, eh, it's not a knife. But now you're like paying attention. Oh, this is delicious. Ooh. Right? Same thing, same price. You don't pay more money. Right? Nothing changes. Already you're happier. You, you multiply your, your joy for no cost. So that's the first effect. The second effect is that neutral experiences increasingly become joyful. It's like, it's like things that were neutral before, one, one by one, they get added to the joyful list. For example, drinking water. Right? In the past, drinking water is kind of like, eh, I'm thirsty, I drink water, eh. And then with this practice, after a while, you realize this is a joyful activity. Every time I do that, I'm like, this is nice, yeah. <laughs> right? And so you went from the neutral category to the joyful category. What happened? Because I stopped taking it for granted. And then when you stop taking it for granted, something, it leads to something else. You lead, it is a cognitive change. Uh, so in this case, I start to realize that this experience is fairly rare, not common. Two billion people in this world have no access to clean water. I have access. My entire life I have access. Even though I grew up in a poor country. I'm so lucky. Suddenly, by just doing this practice, you have gratitude. 
I mean, you read, you read about books on happiness, right? They always say, have gratitude, have gratitude, ah. Right, do a, happy, do a gratitude journey, ah. It's like, it's, it's like work, right? But if it's practice, all you have to do is notice these things. That's, it takes no time, takes no effort, just notice. And it's fun, right? Noticing joy. And then, by itself, by yourself, or by yourself, gratitude arises. It becomes you. Right? Even more better, even better than that. Something else. Um, how should I say? There's, there's a really important experience that we're missing out a lot all the time. And it is freedom from pain. Right? When I had a toothache, I say, if I don't have this toothache, I'll be so happy. <laughs> right? And then I went to see a dentist, pain went away. I was so happy for three days. Three days later, I forget to be happy. And in my case, the same tooth hap- uh, happened again. So I had an impacted tooth, the feeling, the feeling sunk in into the gums. It was extremely painful. Same, pro- same process again. This time, <laughs> when this pain goes away, I'll be so happy. <laughs> same thing. T- took care of it, forgot to be happy. Problem happened again. This time, something broke again, and then now in the root canal and whatever. Root canal broke. So it's like a couple of times. Every time, same thing. After three days, I forget to be happy. What if we have the faculty to not forget? What if we can remember, right now, I am not in pain. I am so happy. What did it take? What does it take? Uh, For me, it, it took being on this path, inclining the mind towards joy, and then one fine day, it just happened by, by, by itself. I was like literally drinking water in my kitchen. And then I suddenly realized, I'm not in pain. I have no physical pain. I have no mental pain. I'm not hungry. I'm not cold. I'm not depressed. I'm, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not jealous. I'm not blah, blah, blah. I'm just drinking water, dude. <laughs> And it's like suddenly I, real, suddenly I realized that being free from pain is one of the most valuable experiences in life. And I don't pay an iota of attention to it. And then when I suddenly do, it makes a huge difference. Which then you might ask this question right? why? Why is it that we notice the presence of phenomena but not the absence? And I think there's a very simple answer, which is uh, when there is a phenomenon, there is sensation, perception, and then there is cognition, and then we get, we get dragged, and then there's proliferation of thought, so we get dragged into the experience. We are stimulated to participate. But in the absence of stimulus, no stimulus, no sensation, no perception, no thoughts, and so on and so forth. Therefore, uh, the absence of stimulus means there is nothing to bring you into participation, bring you as in the mind. Therefore, it, therefore, we never notice. So the solution is to, again to form a mental habit. Mental habit noticing the absence of phenomenon. In this case, the absence of pain. And then after a while, if you do that every now and then, so, so by inclining the mind in joy, it kind of happens automatically, and you can aid it by reminding yourself every now and then, I'm not in pain right now. I'm not depressed, I'm not this, I'm not that. And for those who are practicing mindfulness, uh, that in, to some degree, that is, that is uh, uh, the, the third, the third uh, uh, satipatthana, the uh, uh, chitta, sati, chitta, chitta sati, 
right? Mindfulness or mental factors. I, I am not this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not thinking this, I'm not thinking that, I'm not feeling this, I'm not feeling that. So this is the second effect. Right? Neutral experiences become joyful. The third effect, even more powerful than the first two, is that painful experiences become increasingly manageable. Why so? First reason is that everything we just talked about, all the practices, in addition to raising happiness, the same practices can be used to uh, deal with pain, um, emotional pain. For example, calming the mind. Conduce you to happiness. Also, in, in times of emotional pain, in times of challenge, calm the mind. Half the problem goes away. Then you can begin to solve the other half. Right? Uh, loving kindness. You're in a conflict with somebody, bring out loving kindness. Again, half the problem is solved in the first five minutes. Then you can solve the other half. Right? So same practices. You can use it dual, dual purpose. That's the first reason. More important than that is that if you practice joy to a degree that is sufficiently uh, strong, you begin to be able to access joy, at least intermittently, access joy even in the midst of pain. So there was a time when I was uh, suffering a, a long stretch of intense pain, emotional pain. And then every now and then, I experience unadulterated joy, at least once a day, a few times a day, actually. It's like, out of nowhere, right? It's like, I want to die, I want to die, life sucks. You know? And then, suddenly, out of nowhere, oh, the weather is so nice. I'm so happy. Yay. About two or three minutes, and then back to, I want to die, I want to die. And then I was like, wait a minute, I must be crazy. More than usual. <laughs> I think, this is it, I've, I've gone nuts. <laughs> And the question I ask myself, well, it's because I'm an engineer, the question I ask myself is, if my pain is so strong, why doesn't it dissolve away the, the joy? Or, if the joy is so strong, why doesn't it dissolve away the pain? What is wrong with me? And I found the answer. I found that what happens is pain and joy are mutually insoluble. They do not dissolve each other. When one is much stronger than the other, it dis- displaces the weaker one. So if you have a lot of joy and a little pain, it's going to displace. However, if they are fairly strong, then they coexist side by side. What's the implication of that? Uh, this I learned, from, I learned from a very important person, uh, Rigoberta, my, my friend Rigoberta Manchu. Anybody knows of Rigoberta? Anybody heard of that name? Okay, oh, one person. Okay, two. <laughs> uh, Rigoberta, she, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, she's, she's from Guatemala. She's Mayan. She's the first Mayan woman ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Anybody here ever met a Nobel Peace Prize winner? Okay, one person. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a certain stereotype on the Nobel Peace Prize winner. The stereotype is, must be a nice person. Right? Must be warm, kind, happy, happy, and so on and so forth. Right? Because, why? because they won the Nobel Peace Prize. They must be the, the, like a Dalai Lama or something. Right? Uh, Rigo Berta fits that stereotype to a T. Right? You meet her for the first time, she's nice to you, she's warm, she's genuinely happy, right? she gives you hugs, she's always smiling at you. And it's like, wow, this woman is amazing. Right? That means it's first impression. Already, you love this person. And then if you get to know her, 
two, three hours, not that long, you discover that being right underneath that joy, that genuine joy, by the way, genuine joy, warm kindness and so on, right beneath that, there is a huge reservoir of pain. There's a lot of pain in her life. So Rigoberta, uh, her father was burned alive by the government. Burned alive. Right? Her mom was kidnapped by the government, tortured, raped, murdered, and left on the side of the road to, to feed wild animals. So it's a road between two towns. They just, her body was a dump there. Right? Her brother died under similar circumstances. She lost her son. It's like any one of those things is traumatic for, for most of us. Right? It scars us for life. Any one of those things. She went through all that. And she was still fighting for justice and goodness in the world. And she's still nice, warm-hearted, happy, kind. It's fascinating. So uh, the last time we met her was in Singapore. We invited her to go to Singapore to speak to a bunch of students to inspire them. So she was doing some human humanitarian work in Europe. She came to Singapore for 40 hours, flew back to Europe to do, continue her work. Like she's that busy. Right? So she's still working, even today, for the common good. And I was like, I mean, first it's this amazing human being. And then I was like, how do you square this together? How do you square all the pain with all the joy and the goodness? And then I realized that uh, I wasn't going crazy. Like, so what Rigoberta taught me was that if you have, first thing she taught me is that you can access joy in pain. And the second thing she taught me is that if you do that, you can use pain, sorry, you can use joy as a skillful container for the pain. And the analogy I can think of is, is when you have a fracture, you have a cast around it, it's a, it's a container, skillful container. It does two things. It limits further damage, and it allows healing to happen. So she's using her joy in the same way. It limits more damage, and it allows healing in her to happen. Right? And I was like, this is it. If you have access to joy, you can do that. So these practices are that powerful. And for me, I experienced it in a slightly different way, which is like when I was experiencing pain, it was like a, traversing a desert. And being able to access joy every now and then, a few times a day, is like seeing an oasis. Without the oasis, there's no way to traverse the desert. So this is the power of the practice. It's that powerful. So uh, this is it. Three easy ways to access joy and three important effects. And I wrote this book uh, because I... Be so everything that I'm doing in life is towards a single goal, which is to create the conditions for world peace in my lifetime. World peace in my lifetime. And I think one of the key parts of that is inner peace in the joy and compassion scale worldwide. Worldwide. The reason is this. I think global compassion is a trigger for world peace. However, compassion needs to be uh, sustained. Sorry, right? Compassion is not sustainable unless there's inner joy. Inner joy is not sustainable unless there's inner peace. Therefore, inner peace, inner joy, and compassion has to occur in a chain. 
together as a system. I mean, there are feedback loops, so it's not a transition, but it has to occur together. Therefore, I thought by writing a book on joy and having joy as a centerpiece, I necessarily also have to cover inner peace and compassion as a system. And therefore, by doing that, I hope I make inner peace, inner joy, and compassion understandable, accessible, and more importantly, practicable in the world for everybody. And I hope that, my friends, I hope that this was helpful to you. And I hope that together we'll create the conditions for world peace in our lifetimes. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I left 15 minutes for questions. Are there any questions? Do, we, do they need a mic? Okay. The program that can, you presented... Can I ask your name, by the way? Uh, Ken Hardy. Hi, Ken. The, the program that you've de- described to us yes. uh, has to be very effective in a prison. Yes. And are there programs like that mm. to try to show some compassion and joy in being a prisoner and, and moving on from there? Mm. Uh, close. So I, I started a program called Search Inside Yourself. And I, I make a joke that if in prison, you'd be called search inside your cells. <laughs> so as far as I know, uh, mindfulness has been taught in prison. I uh, started with Goenka very effectively, partly because Goenka is such a wonderful teacher, and, but it's been continuing on. And uh, when mindfulness was taught in uh, prisons, they had a similar impact. They were what you're talking about. Uh, the major impact that's known is the reduction of of recidivism and also the reduction of the sense of revenge. Right? Something like 66% or something of people now want to take revenge less. Something like that. Uh, then the next question is, is joy. Uh, has joy been taught in prison? Uh, I, I haven't. I haven't done this yet. Uh, so, so this is very new. I mean, joy has been part of the path for so long. The Buddha talks about it all the time. But it hasn't, in my opinion, in my, in my limited knowledge, hasn't been like Consolidated into a subject in and of itself in in the in the uh, uh, real the lay the lay world. So this is very new. Uh, it's so new that uh, when my organization, the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, uh, S I Y L I, pronounced as silly, so so silly wanted to run a course on joy, and I, at first I said no, but eventually I said yes, and so we're going to try out our first class. I think in this in October. So those who are interested, or tell your friends, siyli.org slash joy. Silly.org joy. And then we try to run a class for civilians. And then uh, let's see how well it works out. And if it works, then maybe we can bring it to more places, like the prisons. Mm. Thank you. Question over there. Well, uh, here and then there. So it, your I'm name? Carol. Hi, Carol. So I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm wondering what is the similarity, differences mm. perhaps between happy, being happy, mm-hmm. and being joyful? Mm. Yeah. Joyful seems like a more mm. active yes. feeling, whereas happiness seems like, you know, So the, the, the problem with these two words is that they're not well uh, uh, defined. So there's no consensus definition. And so the definition that I'm using is that uh, joy is moment-to-moment uh, pleasant emotion. 
and happiness is uh, integration of uh, when describing a, a period of time, a day or a month or a lifetime. So that's how I describe it. Not as intensity, but as the scale. So the question is whether happiness is a disposition. Uh, I think there is a happiness disposition, but the way I define it, happiness is, is a mental state over time, uh, a state of flourishing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, there's that over there. Hi, my name is Bay. Bay. Hi, Bay. Um, what's your advice if um, I try to look for joy and it's not there, and can I be attached to finding it? Mm. I think we are already attached to finding it. I mean, all of us live to be happy. Right? So, uh, the, and then a lot of us are not happy for for wide variety of reasons. And uh, so for me, right, uh, the path that I took, uh, I began with uh, desperation. I didn't begin this path with, this is, I, this, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was so desperate, I was willing to try anything. And back then, when I was growing up in Singapore, uh, in, yeah, I'm kind of old back then, like meditation is not it's not mainstream. It's 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 weird. It's fringe, and you have to be you have to be like really desperate to to want to do it. And I was that desperate. And so for me, uh, my first my first motivation was to escape from gross suffering, from misery. And then uh, I found meditation, and I found that first by calming my mind, I was less miserable. And then later on, uh, I it's gradually morphed from less misery to not miserable to joyful. So for me, it was a long process. It took many years. And my hope is that uh, by writing the book, by doing my work now, it will accelerate for a lot of people. Because things that I learned over the course, rather than have to like, do it trial and error, I, like, I lay it out so people can understand. At least they understand the whole map. Then it will accelerate. Uh, and I hope that happens for everybody. Uh, but at the same time, I also know that we're all human beings. So not everybody can, like, I'm going to be happy t- tomorrow. So uh, what that means is, a uh, so, couple of things. First thing is, know that this is, this is fine. This is the human condition. The human condition is suffering. The default human condition, not the default mind, the default condition is unsatisfactoriness. Life is unsatisfactory, impermanent, and no self, but suffering, right? That's the default. Having known that, uh, next thing is uh, that there is a method, knowing that there's a way between here and there, that, I, that even, even Ming can do, anybody can do, towards less suffering to joy. So that's the second thing. First, knowing suffering. Second, knowing there's a path that we can all take. Uh, third, doing the practices over time, trusting the practice. And fourth, I think uh, maybe the most important, kindness and compassion to self and to others. So in the meantime, you're getting there. It's okay. I know I'm suffering, but be kind to the self, be kind to other people. Yeah. And then knowing that over time, things will improve.
Thank you. Um, I, th I really your, like... Your name is? Oh, my name is Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Um, I really like how you started with such a simple meditation. I've never actually seen meditation introduced in, in such a really, really short, simple way. And I, I really think it's wonderful, and I think all meditation should always start that small, because mm -hmm. I was in a, in a place where we did like a 20-minute meditation, and I was just wonderful. I was like, oh, this is great. And my wife did the same thing. I said, how was it? She said it was awful. You know, like, she, like, she was like stressed out the entire meditation. And so I, I love your emphasis on the like, mm. no effort. If you're, if you're putting like, effort, you know, you're doing I mean, just try. It shouldn't be effort. I mean, and, like, and keeping it as short. And, mm. and I think that's a great way to get people... Because there's so many stories, but I don't know if anyone else, I mean, people who have tried meditation and they end up with these experiences of struggle mm -hmm. they, because they're, they think they should just be able to sit down and do 20 minutes. No mm. problem. Mm. <laughs> okay, I can, I can, can I give you some comments to that? Uh, the first thing about uh, not struggling, there should be no struggle. Actually, actually, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I wrote about it in this book, but the way I experience it, uh, first and foremost, Learn to relax. Relaxation is the foundation of all progress in meditation. So if you cannot relax, you cannot progress. And therefore, you are right. right? Don't struggle. Don't stress. Just relax. That's one. However, once that foundation is built, if there's only the foundation, then you don't have a house. So the second thing on top of that is, uh, at least for me, may or may not apply to everybody, is effort. So this is, this is where I had to put in effort without losing uh, relaxation. So specifically, the effort is in building uh, attentional stability. Right? So the mind keeps, attention keeps wandering away. And this is the effort to stabilize attention on the chosen object, in my case, the breath, without losing relaxation, without stressing out, without, uh, but relax and stable, with effort. So, so it's in this, at this stage, effort is extremely important. And then, after that, there's a third stage, which is that once that happens, once I'm, we are, I'm good at that, the effort itself becomes a hindrance. And the reason is because beyond a certain point, all mental factors become a hindrance, and effort itself is a mental factor. So at that time, by the way, the mind was familiar enough with the object, familiar with stability of attention, then it can release effort, then it will go smoothly, effortless shamatha. Of course, there's an overall scheme, but not everybody will have this, because there are people who can do effortless shamatha from day one. Right? So those people, when they become, and they tend to become the teachers because they're so good. They say, yeah, everybody should be doing this. No effort from day one. You, you, there's no pro, for me, there's no progress. After, uh, right? Or from day one, the teachers say, okay, everybody work hard, struggle. Right. So it's a lot more nuanced than that. That's, that's the first comment. Uh, second comment is, uh, the, it comes to the question, how much time do we need to practice in order to have any impact? So uh, I, think, I think historically there's a, there's a cultural bias. The bias is that it takes a long time. And the reason there's a bias, I think, is for thousands of years, people who practice meditation practice it full-time, and lay people don't do it at all. Like zero or full-time. Right? So full-time, you do nothing else but practice all day. So therefore, there's an expectation. Therefore, it must take a lot of time. So that was my expectation coming in. 
And uh, the scientific data surprised me. Uh, scientifically, how long does it take? So here's a question. How long does it take to have any measurable impact? Measurable through scientific instrumentation or surveys or something. The surprise, anybody knows the answer, by the way? The surprising answer, 100 minutes. Lifetime practice, right? So not, not a session, but lifetime. Start from zero. 100 minutes, you already can measure impact. Fascinating stuff. And one of the recent studies, uh, the measure impact was GRE scores, taking the exam. Right? So kids who practice from nothing, right? they practice for 20, 10 minutes a day for two weeks, 140 minutes, they have better GRE scores. Fascinating stuff. And then uh, from zero to it begins to like, change your life, about 50 hours. From zero to become, you're very good at this. Very good means you're good enough to like, stand here and give a talk like this. In my opinion, about 1,000 hours, 1,000 hours, 2,000 hours. So my, my own lifetime practice is about 3,000 hours. Right? And then if you have to master, mastery, mastery is in Shaila, 10,000 hours-ish. Right? There's a lot of variance, but about that. And, and you notice that there's a correspondence with anything that requires skills, like playing the piano. Same timeline, right? From zero to you can play a simple song, chopsticks. About two hours, 100-ish minutes. Right? From zero to you, have, you, are, you can play simple songs. Not just one song, but a few simple songs. About 50 hours. From zero to you're very good. Good enough to play in church on, 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 like, uh, on demand. About 1,000 hours. From zero to symphony, uh, you can play with a symphony orchestra. 10,000 hours. Same, same timeline. And the most important part is this. How much time does it take to have any impact? I say first breath. For piano, it's the first time you press it, you can hear the sound. And for the breath, the first time you do it, there's an impact. So if you look at this whole thing, you find that actually it doesn't take a lot of time for most people. And this is why the practices I design are also short. The key thing is intensity, the perfume energy. As long as it's intense and short, I think it benefit a lot of people. I think we have time for one last question. Who has the last question? Okay. And then after that, we cookies. So let's not stand in the way between you and cookies. <laughs> um, hello, my name is Harry. Hi, Harry. Um, so my question is uh, related to like sensuous joy and mm. and like inner joy, right? Yes. Um, what I find is that when I'm tired, right, I I will instantly look for kind of sensuous joy. Yeah. And after meditate a while, I also have access to some inner joy, and I find like okay, so it's probably inner joy is better. Mm-hmm. And I, I would try to give up the, the sensuous joy and you know, do meditations when I'm tired. Mm-hmm. And I could feel good. But then, like, after, you know, one week or two weeks, it, it becomes the... Um, I revert back to the, to the habit of mm-hmm. seeking um, sensuous joy from games and news mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And right. So I guess my question is how... Mm-hmm. How do you change change your mind so that you you know instead of mm. the default state of seeking for this kind of sensual joy, you mm. seek for inner joy? Mm. I just give you a few words. It's, 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 it applies in this case, but it's also generally true for for practice in general. And the three words are: don't stop and don't strain. Right. So so continue on. If you are like if you find your practice lagging, it's okay. 
Don't stop it. Just bring it back. But also don't go like, oh, I suck at this. I have to, like, don't, no self-blame and so on. Just don't stop. And just remember these words. Don't stop and don't strain. And this, was, uh, came, this is a good place to close because this was came from the Buddha. And I'll t- let me tell you the story of, of, those, of, of how those words came about and then we can close this. So according, this is, uh, for those who know Samutta Nikaya, it's, it's a very thick uh, collection of the Buddha's teachings. It's a single volume, but it's very thick. And the very first sutta, the very first discourse in the Samutta Nikaya is on that topic. And the story was uh, a deva, a, a godly being, came, came down to ask for teachings to, from the Buddha. And he came down and he bowed down to the Buddha and he asked a very simple question in a very poetic way. So the question was, how do you get, how do you get enlightened? But the, the way he asked it, very poetically, because he's a god, he, was, he says, how did the Blessed One cross the stream? And the Buddha says, by not stopping and by not straining, I crossed the stream. Because if I had stopped, I would have drowned. If I had strained, I would have been swept away. Therefore, don't stop and don't strain. And hearing that, the deva bowed down and got his answer and disappeared. So my friends, remember this. Do not stop and do not strain. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.